that this teaching that was happening in Ephesus, that this error, that these divisions that were taking place because of it were necessary, but then also that God has authority over them. And they're easily reconciled. That, that's the beauty of the Christian walk. I want, you to, I want you to hear this this morning. As I said last week, we often come with glad tidings and joyful commands. But we are not glad and we are not joyful. We put on airs. We put on the, 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 the show. It's like in jazz school and music school. You know, when we had concerts, when we practiced, we wore what we wanted. T-shirts, flip-flops, jeans, bandanas, ball caps. But when we performed, we had to look like penguins. You know, We had to wear the tux. We had a certain color tie and a certain color cummerbund or a vest or whatever. And when we were singing, yeah, man, have you ever seen a quartet in overalls? Maybe, I don't know, maybe in the West Virginia. But, you know, not, not in music school. You, you, wear, you wear the regalia. And so we put on the show. Now, Grandmother Tippins used to get upset, and I'd be rolling out with my horn and have my, have my tuxedo on, and she was so concerned that I was falling into darkness. And she'd stand at the door, and she'd say, Don't you forget about Elvis. Right. I was three when Elvis died. I mean, you know, I don't remember him at all. Well... You know what happens when you play in them juke joints. You know, she thought that the theater was a juke joint because that's all she knew. She thought I was in some big band somewhere at a speakeasy. And the ATF were busting up crates or something. I don't know. I don't know what she thought. But she never really could grasp the fact that when I put on that tuxedo, I wasn't juking. I was actually performing Bach or <laughs> whatever it might be that the wind ensemble might be doing. But we do that. We put on the show. We put on the show in our vocabulary. We put on our show in our speech. And my voice is a little raspy this morning because, I don't know, I thought we washed the pollen away, but I guess not. But we put on the show in our grammar. I mean, my dialect changes depending on who I'm standing around. Have any of you noticed that? It's incredible. It's called an empathetic ear. It's what makes me good to hear certain pitches and tones and music. Helps you play in tune and sing in tune, but it also makes you seem a little odd when you're hanging around all the really country folks and nobody else can understand you, but you can understand them and they can understand you. It's almost like speaking different languages in the same tongue, but we do it subconsciously. We do it indirectly. We are following a pattern set before us from birth that someone, without even speaking words, has established for us, and we follow it and we just go with it. And then we take that pattern and we walk and we live and we act. I like to give the riddle that I'm the oldest of five sons. My mom and dad have three boys and I'm an only child. Now you can figure that out if you want. All three true statements. But my father's other sons and I, we stand alike. We cross our hands alike. We mash our teeth alike. And when we're upset, we get on our toes alike. No one sat us down and said, all right, son, now, when you become a man, do this, do this, and do this. <laughs> we just do it because it's imposed upon us through the observation of our lives. Now, for those of you who know the science of that, we know what that falls into. But in reality, our Christian faith is the same. Our understanding of Scripture is the same. And so there is a necessity for the shepherds of the flock to remind the church of these things, just like the apostles reminded the elders of the first church so that they could also remind the church. And when we get over into chapter 3, we're going to see some things about qualifications. When we get into second. Timothy, we're going to see some things about the calling to the ministry. When we get over into chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, we're going to see something about the sufficiency of Scripture. But if we just wait until we get there, then we're going to miss the point, see? Because we're supposed to read these things, oops, we're supposed to read these letters in their fullness as we sit together each day. They're supposed to be absorbed in their completeness, not a verse. We're not supposed to come and get verse 12 today. 
We're supposed to come and think about verse 12 in the oversight of the elders of the church as we have already absorbed the whole letter, both letters, and we have an understanding of what they're teaching because we've read them already. You can't learn the Bible a verse at a time. You can expound upon it. You can expand your understanding, but you have to read it. Recipes can't be dealt with one line a day. You'll never get the pot fixed and finished. You'll never get the the meal done. There's some interesting stuff that we need to look at here. Now, Paul says these things to this young elder so that this young elder would lead the people of Christ effectively, successfully, prosperously. And Paul says, look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. And we've, we've examined that. Not thoroughly, but sufficiently, sufficiently within this context. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the, what? For the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the sinner, for the ungodly, for the unholy and the profane. And then Paul establishes an example for every one of the Ten Commandments in this little sentence. And then he closes it out, and this is where we were last week. He says, and whatever else is contrary, the second part of verse 10, to sound teaching. And we're going to emphasize sound teaching a lot this morning as it relates to the next expression of Paul. In accordance with the gospel, the good report of the revelation of who God is, the glory of God, who is blessed, with which I have been entrusted as a steward to teach to you. So Paul's concern was to reestablish a foundation of gospel truth. Not to spend his time dealing with error, not to ridiculously anathematize, and that means to curse, to curse, only God can curse. Not to curse those who are in error, those who are divisive, but to reconcile them to the gospel. All doing so in obedience to the, to the Lord's commands through his apostles to be intimate and in covenant commitment with one another. We seem to understand this. Now, this, this is, there are exceptions to what I'm about to say. But we seem to understand this idea of covenant promise and intimacy when it comes to our children. There are exceptions. There are some people that I know who have kicked their kids out, who have tried to adopt them out, who have left them on doorsteps. And I'm not going to make judgment on that because I'm not in their head. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what horror that they're experiencing. I mean, I, don't, I, mean, I know that there's some closeness sometimes to a child and to the spawn of evil. But then I'm... Their father. So, I mean, you know, we have, we have to realize, we have to realize we can't make judgment. But in a general sense, most people, no matter how horrible their children are, they don't throw them out. I think the youngest any of my children decided they were going to leave on their own was four. Yeah. My neighbor has a young kid haven't met this kid yet, but he's probably around that age, and he was rolling down the street with his three-wheeler and a rolling bag the other day. And I thought, yeah, he's running off. Sure enough, another neighbor went out, and he thought, I'm not staying here, and I can't take this place. You know, and I'm like, golly, to be five or four, and to think you could just walk out the door, you know. That's what they do, but we don't throw our children away. No matter how bad they act, they're still our children. Yes, we create boundaries. We create natural and, 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 you know, choice consequences. We deal with discipline, which means correction. The point of discipline is to correct the behavior or the attitude of the mindset. It's not to punish. It's not punishment. Discipline and punishment are completely different things. They don't sit in the same category. Now, someone would argue that, but I think I could argue better. 
Let's try it. I'm willing to have a nice discussion. Correction. We want to teach. So the idea of correction in discipline is to teach what is right. To disavow or dissuade what is wrong. To change the behavior from this to this. Just like you would a dog. I've always been told if you can train a dog, you can train a child. It's true. People spend more time on their pets and their birds than they do their children. And, and no wonder they don't listen. Because the dog is more beloved than the son. And that's a joke. Don't take offense. Because we know we love our animals. They're going to be with us when the children run off with their bags. To that end, though, we don't disown our children. They're, even if they run away, they're still our children. Even if they go to the courts and they emancipate themselves through some process, they are still, in every real way, our children, even if the letter of the law says otherwise. Why don't we look at marriage that way? Why don't we look at friendships that way? Why don't we look at the gospel that way? Why don't we look at the sovereignty of God that way? Because we just can't. We can regurgitate the, the, the uh, we can regurgitate what we say we believe is true but when it comes down to it we're all struggling to hold fast to what the bible would tell us is the prescription for joy and then we do what we've been taught to do that we don't know that we've been taught to do and we're back to square one we're just following the patterns of this world see when you hear paul say that and Ephesians chapter 2, don't we often always, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe the patterns of this world are thus that evil, wicked stuff. No, it's also the way we think. It's also understanding that we are, in most every way, a slave. A slave to another person's ideals, a slave to history, a slave to our own natural consequences of the actions and the decisions we've made. We push this button and this pops out, but we don't think anything further than that. Some people might charge me with being philosophical this morning, of which I am. Also psychological, but I will tell you that it's extremely biblical and contextual. Because what caused this division in the church of Ephesus? <laughs> People devoted themselves to thinking about myths. People were thinking too much about genealogies. People were trying to make comparisons and contrasts and distinctions to the point where they could feel that they were pure and understood it so well. And then those who gained knowledge and they had zeal but not wisdom were puffed up. They became the thumpers, making it known very clearly who they were and what they knew and that they were right. And then some of them were very persuasive because a lot of times it doesn't take good logic to persuade someone. It just takes zeal. It takes a little charisma. It takes a little tear. And we call that salesmanship. It's a show. It's like putting on a tux. We're all victims in that sense. And we're all perpetuators of such crimes. Some people call it manipulation. But if it's in the context of good marketing, it's sales. Some people call it deception, but if it's in the context of good investigation, it's called prowess. Some people call it sneakiness, but in the right context, it has wisdom. And beloved, there's no black and white in those things. We must seek wisdom. We must learn. Do you know that God will teach us through, the word of, through his word? The Holy Spirit will grant us understanding, but you know what He will not do? He will not grant us understanding when we go to the Word with understanding. He will not teach us anything when we go to the Word as experts. He will not show us Himself in any real sense when we go knowing what we're already going to find. Now, I want you to hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I'm saying that it doesn't mean that we're completely ignorant every time we open the Bible. <gasps> But sometimes we go to prove our point rather than go and let God teach us his. And so we need to always be willing and able to realize that mm, I myself have gotten all tied up in endless genealogies. I have also been debating things that aren't necessarily helpful. I have preached things 
probably most likely, yes, from this pulpit, that probably were ill-mannered or ill-appointed in their timing. Or maybe just from my little, you know, it's not the 20 minutes that matters, it's the two seconds. It's not the lifelong intimacy that we have together with Grandma. It's that one time she slapped us, you see. That's what we remember. Those things have a lasting impact, and sometimes pastors can slap the church and not even know it. I know I've felt slapped. Have you felt slapped? Yes. But then we go back to what Paul is teaching. We know how to use the Word of God. We know how to rightly handle the Word. And the primary thing that we start with is knowing that we must humbly come to the Scriptures with everything that God has taught us, with all of the study that we have, and know that God is not going to wake us up tomorrow morning and have given us knowledge in our sleep. We must take time to study in order to be approved to teach. That is why... Pastors must make their living with the gospel. Because if I'm just doing everything else and then coming in here on a two-hour wind, it's going to be worthless for you. And I'm going to become the haughty but humble expert that doesn't need to study. You see, that's sad. And we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention. And there are some things that I can get out of the text because i got a lot of tools, you know? got a lot of resources. Mechanics start out with a couple of wrenches, a couple of tools, and by the time they've worked 40 years, they've got a warehouse full. I've got a warehouse full of tools. Some of them I'll never use again. Some of them I've never even taken out of the wrapper. But they're there. What tools are you using? Are you going back to the original tools? Are you going back to the foundation? I'm not talking about the Greek. I'm talking about are you using the word of God as the foundation of your faith? Are you testing everything I say and do and ask of you by the scripture? If it is reasonable, if it is taught, and if it is good for the building up in the love of the church, it is something that God himself then has required of us. No, if we don't do it, he doesn't disown us. If we disobey the commands of Christ... He goes, well, you were my son, now you're not. Because it's not about us coming to him, it's about him dying for us. And it's about the Spirit of God causing us to rest in that promise and the power therein. That's faith. And then all then, the life we live together is God's prescription for us to be intimate, that we may know what is good and lovely and eternal, and we work to that end, not looking after our own interest only, but also the interest of one another. Not as, I saw, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 12, at the opening of our, of our service this morning, where Paul says, I don't want to boast because you'll think more of me than you ought to, but you should judge me and think of me only by how I act in my life, and how I teach with my mouth. That's what he said. So know what I've said to you. And see how I, lack, how I act. And what does he mean by how I act? How I treat people. How I treat people. And that's the problem. The problem in Ephesus is not that people were confused or wrong. Or came up with some incredible idea they saw on... Uh, sand tube or wherever it was that they found this information but because they were causing harm to people's conscience they were dividing over the argument rather than the truth you see and it happens to us all it happens to us in our homes it happens to us in our jobs it happens to us in many ways I'm counseling another couple that's preparing to be married and I start out in my first few times with a new couple, and I always ask this question, why do you think your marriage will beat the statistics that one and two end in divorce? And if they're young, they'll say, you know, we're going to have the Lord at the center. It doesn't matter. The Lord at the center? What does that even mean? That sounds right. The Lord at the center. It is right. But what does it mean? Because Christian marriages, quote, 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 and non-Christian marriages have the same rate of success, completely. The same rate. 
As a matter of fact, if you really start looking, evangelicals have a higher divorce rate than anybody. So now, why is your marriage going to be? You know what I found? Is that even people who would deny the gospel, when they learn about covenant intimacy and they learn to forgive one another. See, you don't have to be a Christian to understand forgiveness. But you are not a child of God until you understand His. Or let me put that back. Because you are a child of God, you will understand His. I don't want to make it a condition. But it is. <laughs> Even unbelievers, when they understand forgiveness and forbearing and thinking of the other more than they think of themselves, it becomes successful. And what's the success? That it stays together. Not that it's always happy. And that's with any relationship. And so here we have Paul saying he's been entrusted with the gospel of glory, of the blessed God, and his occasion here to, to teach this, and his audience is a, an elder only, and, and, and the context is this, that there were these people who were part of the body, these beloved brothers, who were stirring up a bunch of mess and causing the church to be at odds with one another, and his intention was to bring the church back together, not to harm anybody, not to make anybody look bad, but to bring everybody under the precious Sovereignty of Christ. And the ones who leave, as we see in John's writing and other places where Paul writes to the Corinthians, those are the ones who are excommunicated because they won't stop that behavior. You realize you cannot be excommunicated because you think differently or you have a different of opinion or you have even a skewed theology because... Thinking something is different than making people divide over it. I think a lot of things. My philosophy and my poetry database, self-poetry, is, is a ghastly mix. Not ghastly, but ghastly mix. It might be ghastly as well, if it leaked out. But it's a ghastly mix of weird, strange anecdotal mix of falsehood, falsehood and truths. My propositions and the outcomes of the way I think, sometimes, it, it, I mean, I have been quiet on stuff for six or seven years before, before I shared it with anybody. And then when I share it and they look at me like I'm, I don't know, like my head turned around backwards and exchanged it for my butt, um, I just sort of keep it to myself. But what if I was insistent? See, that's the occasion. Okay, so therein, what I just explained to you is the context of Paul's letter to, first, Paul's letter to Timothy. That's the occasion. That's the context. The context always determines the meaning. And it always determines our understanding. The letters of the New Testament are not for us to get exhaustive understanding on a topic. Matter of fact, there is no way possible that any human being alive can have exhaustive knowledge of any biblical thing when God himself is eternal. However, we can exhaust our understanding and we can expressly deal with everything that we know and continue to learn. But what is Paul's next word? Look at me trying to scroll up in my Bible. That was weird. <laughs> Goodness gracious. And I was a Luddite a month ago, you know. Um, that's funny. I literally went up. I said, I can't see the bottom of this. Whew. Sorry, I've got to get my thoughts again. Oh, Paul, what does he say? He doesn't come back and then start to lambast and, 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 and stress out over these things. He's seeking reconciliation. And the next thing out of his mouth, look at verse 12. I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength. Who is him? The one who has given him strength. Who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, God, our Savior, Christ Jesus, our hope. Mercy, grace, peace, this God. I thank Him who has given me strength. Who is this? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, what are you thanking? What was this strength? Because He judged me faithful. He appointed me to His service. Let's stop there. 
So this is, this is Paul's response. This is Paul's response. This is Paul's personal expression of what's going on in Ephesus. What does he say? Now, listen, we've got Galatians, Paul's first letter. We know what Paul says there, but he's pleading with a loved people, a beloved, born-again people who he said has been bewitched because they have taken circumcision. Those people were not accursed. There's nothing you can do to your body that will separate you eternally from Christ. Because if you are His, I mean, and you might think, well, that, that, you know, He's talking about circumcision. And that's the only context of Galatians. But what it does is it points to a bigger thing. So where are we in the 80s? You know, in the 1980s. I remember growing up and the only people that had tattoos were what? Mass murderers. <laughs> I mean, that's what we were taught indirectly, right? No, oh, you don't want a tattoo. You don't want to identify with that. Well, in the Bible, do not mark your bodies. Don't mark your body, son. <laughs> you know? That's <laughs> not permanent. Okay. Does it have to be permanent? I mean, you see the arguments? So we take the context and we throw it away and then we create a pretext and we create an entire theology about having to control people and then indirectly we get the entire world to follow our pattern. And then we have evangelicalism. Ta-da! In its fourth iteration. It's not the fourth generation, but it's the fourth iteration. Neo-evangelical, post-evangelical, post-modern evangelical, and so on and so forth. I'd hate to be a philosopher today. I'd have to walk around like nine volumes of dictionaries with three volumes of blank paper. And so here we have Paul in the context. His response is he's thanking God for his power. Okay, he's thanking God for his power. He's saying that anything that is contrary to sound teaching, we need to not let it happen. Elder Timothy. Young elder Timothy. Isn't that a, that's an oxymoron, right? You know that. Young man, old man, Timothy. The young one older. Don't let it happen. Charge these people. Teach them. Instruct them not to think this way and not to teach these things so that we can have unity. Oh, I thank God who has given me strength in Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful. He judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Now see, all of us there could stop and say, yeah, I want to be faithful. Then God will appoint me to his service. That's not how it works for Paul. Paul was not a faithful servant. He thought he was. Paul actually was exactly like the people he's writing about now. He was the one who with all authority and absolute 100% accuracy in its exegetical prowess, he came to the table of being the poster child of Jewish authority. The poster child of Jewish piety. These are Paul's words, not mine. He says to the Philippians, blameless. The Jew of Jews, Benjamin, circumcised, named after the king of Israel, Saul, Saulus. That's Paul's name. And so, he's appointed to the service because the Lord judged me faithful, yet he was not faithful. Look, look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. See, when God shows us our self-righteousness, we see it. How do we see it? Does God say, Tippins, look at your self-righteousness. Look at this and look at that and look at all these things you're thinking. No, because he'd be constantly saying, look. He'd be constantly like walking a child when you're learning to walk. Now watch out for snakes. Now watch out for glass. And we're in the, cr the crib. Always mind your manners. Good boy, you took a step. Yay. Don't want to wear out. Sit down. You don't want a hamstring pull. Sit down. 
I mean, there's this constant overbearing worry about what's next and what could happen and what could possibly go wrong. This isn't how God establishes his revelation to his people, nor is it how he teaches his people. He teaches us himself. And he taught Paul not about all the wrong things he did, just like Jesus in John chapter 4 when he's talking with the woman of Sychar and he explains to her the gospel over and over again which she is, in which she is well versed, you know. She knew it. And then supernaturally he reveals himself to her and the Spirit of God granted her faith. To trust in the promises of God through the Messiah. And she goes back and says an amazing phrase when she runs back after formally avoiding the people of town because of her wickedness and her fleshliness and her sinfulness. Because she didn't want to be ridiculed. She goes back to town and she says, y'all come see. I mean, if she's a southern girl, she'd be like, y'all come see now. I've met a man that told me every bad thing I've ever done. I think he's the Christ. Y'all come see. But Jesus didn't tell her that, did he? Jesus showed her grace. Jesus showed her what salvation was truly him. And all of a sudden it was like, all the things she'd been trying to do, all the things she'd been arguing for, not all of them, but the ones that were fresh in her mind. We're not supposed to dig out all the old things. God, by his mercy, has caused me to forget so much. Where I used to forget nothing, now I forget everything, and it's beautiful. And I'm saying that sincerely. That was my biggest stress after a very difficult time emotionally and mentally. I can't think anymore. I can't remember. And now I'm like, I don't need to. What I need is right before me. And now is what's most important. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the children of God. How would we treat Paul today? Not the Apostle Paul, but one of the 70. How would we treat him as a Sanhedrin member? I know what we'd do. We'd create a website. PaulThePickle.com Sourpuss of teachers. Wicked slayer of the innocent children of God. The reprobate of reprobates. And that's what we do, right? And then some people would like, no, Paul's an expert. He's got a PhD from Claxton Seminary. <laughs> that's about what it's worth, right? He, he, he's, he's done all this. He's, he's written 700 books. I feel bad for him. No. Write books. You know I'm just joking. I'm not anti-book. But that's what we would do. And then there would be forums and groups and messages and things and television shows and everywhere you look, apologists. You know what an apologist does? Stands in the context of Scripture and exposits the truth of Christ. I know a few people who are true apologists and I know... A thousand. I won't exaggerate. I know a thousand who aren't, but take the title. Paul would be despised and he would be hated. But you know what wouldn't happen for Paul in today's Christianity? He would never be evangelized. <laughs> He'd be avoided. Oh, the same thing would happen to him as the apostle too. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. Paul went door to door with swords, with a little tiny little army, town to town, looking for the apostles, looking for the eleven plus Matthias. 
and had no idea he would be number 13. He was zealous and he was brilliant. Paul was one of the greatest philosophers that ever stood on two feet. And I believe that if Paul argued against you in the court of the Sanhedrin, you would die. You wouldn't, you wouldn't beat him. Move over Johnny Cochran, it's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and only the older folks in the room got that. I was a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. I receive mercy. And this is where we're going to focus the next 15 minutes. I receive mercy. And I don't like what Paul writes here, but I know the context in which he writes it. But for us, we like to pull this line out and make an entire theology behind it. But this is not Paul's intention. Listen to it. But I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. His emphasis is not on his ignorance and unbelief. His emphasis is on the very next phrase. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now I could keep talking. And if we're thinking, well, what is this grace? What is this mercy? What is this faith and love of Christ? The same is trustworthy, verse 15, and deserving of full embrace, full acceptance, full adoption, full confidence that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Point number one of the grace of God. Point number two in Paul's experience and knowledge of whom I of whom I am the foremost. So I can make confident assertions about the hypothetical reality of how Paul would be treated here because of the expression of what Paul is revealed to be before Christ snatched him out of darkness and blinded his physical eyes by giving him spiritual sight. And he no longer looked at where he'd been or what he did, but as he grew over these 30, 40 years in ministry, over the first decade before he ever preached his first, ever went on a missionary journey, in isolation, learning, relearning that which he was an expert in, he never looked back and tethered anything of his old life to Christ. But Christ came in like, a, like a, a, a divine weed eater and just chopped the top off. And Paul was snatched up and the roots of all of those dead works were left to decay in the ground. You see. Paul is the foremost sinner. It's not hyperbole or over... Expressive humility, it's a reality for Paul. He killed the very elect of God by his own command. Had them torn from one another, had children sold into slavery. Because he hated the way of Christ. But he loved God the Father with all of his heart, mind, Soul and strength. But what does Jesus say? Paul never loved God at all. Because he never loved the ones that belonged to him. Sound teaching is expressed here. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk into some things that are very personal for us. And I pray that what you hear this morning is guided by the, the, the mysteries of God's Spirit. Because as a body, as a family, we have to handle what comes our way according to the Scripture. And I've already talked about these things, but this morning I want to express a clear contextual reality. About what we need to be focused on most of all. 
Paul says that he was entrusted with sound doctrine and that the elders of the church, Timothy, you are to call people and to charge them to cease acting or speaking or teaching in any way that is contrary to sound doctrine. And beloved, all of us in this room have experienced that, haven't we? Either it's been a direct conversation or something that we've heard from the pulpit or something we've read in our own word, our own copy of the scriptures that has caused us to go, okay, I need to, I need to stop doing that. Like memes that are mocking unbelief, you know, stuff like that. And I'm not going to give a list of things, but we've talked about those like, over the last few years. I like some of them. We laugh. I've got a comedy sketch that I was doing in my mind the other day of how we don't laugh at what's funny anymore. We laugh at misery. And the reason we find things funny is because we're mean. And then we laugh at that because I can't help myself, right? Because we're so conditioned, back to when I started my story, we're so conditioned to know what's funny. We join in and don't even know it. So what is contrary to sound teaching is what is contrary to what is sound and true and right. And Paul's intention is to correct this. And sound teaching corrects and overcomes error. Sound teaching destroys man's philosophy and sets the record straight. Not in dogma and overlording and expressive passion, but in calmness and logic and reasoning and expressing tenderly that which is taught according to the scripture. Sound teaching is a gift of God. See, he says there, I thank him who has given me strength and judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God and by the mercy and the grace and the peace and the love of God, our Savior. And this is a gift of God. We go to Paul's writing to the Ephesians and he tells that God has given gifts to the church. And all of us are a gift to someone, to one another. We all have roles, but not all of us are going to be teachers. Not every man in this church is going to be able to teach the Word of God. But I have to. And the elders of the church have to. We have no choice. Beloved, I have tried to leave the ministry for 23 years, and I've only been active in the ministry for 22 years. can't. I've tried. I want to sometimes. Desperately. Why? Because I just want to live for myself like a selfish fool sometimes, you know? Don't you? Parents? If I could just turn them off. You know? It's all great when everything's great, but sometimes I just want to break. You know what? We've got to take those little breaks. We've got to escape like Jesus. We don't have to work. 164 hours a week. Tippins. We have to teach. And when we are called to teach, it is a gift of the church. Matter of fact, it is, a, it is a precious gift. And it's strange for me to say that because it sounds self-serving. But beloved, I'm telling you now, if I could give it up, I would. But I can't because I love you too much. And there's nothing else that I, nothing else that I can do. And every time I try, God tears my body apart. Every time. Every time I try to do something, just to ease the burden, God just says, <laughs> you want something else to do? Well, just go sit on your butt for a month. There you go. That's correction. Your child is sticking his hand in the fire. And you lead them to safety. Want to do something that's not healthy, not good, against what the Lord desires. He's just going to redirect us over here to what he's doing. Sound teaching redirects the church, beloved. I want you to hear this. Our duty to come together and assemble is not so we can get a sermon. You can listen to this online. I don't ever have to show up. People don't even know who I am can listen to this. and go, Yeah, that's, that's good information. 
Yeah, let me take notes on that. Yeah, good information. But to apply it to our lives, to be shepherded under it, is a different story. So know that I love you, beloved. And I pray that you love one another. Sound teaching is a gift of God. Sound teaching, as I've already said, is a responsibility of stewardship. It's not our call. It's God's call. It's God's appointment. It's God's appointment for you to be in the faith, to be in this body, to endure, to suffer, and to rejoice. Sound teaching, to be a teacher is a divine calling. It's not something man just decides, you know what, I want to be an apologist. I want to be an evangelist. I think I'm just going to do that. There are too many of these people out here. And their platform is not, first and foremost, to deal with the simple instructions of grace and then the simple lifestyle of grace, but to deal with everything that they deem is not exactly the way it should be. And beloved, we're all guilty. This past week... I was reminded by the Lord just how much rage and anger and absolute hate rests in my conscience. And I don't, know where, I don't know where that stuff is in the spiritual sense, philosophically. With my soul, my heart, my gut, my bowels, my pinky toe. I don't know where it rests, but when it comes out, when it rises up, I felt 20. And somebody accosted me on Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. I think I went blank for two days. No, I did not sin in my anger. No, I did not express myself in a rude way. No, I did not beat anybody to a bloody pulp. I did not pull a gun. I did not sick my dog on them. I did not call down fire from heaven. I did not act like a ridiculous idiot. Oh, but I wanted to. And I felt it. I felt it at the tips of my fingers. Man, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, just thinking when all the years, when, you know, 19 years of close quarter combat training and you're too old to even pick up a bag of sugar because of your arthritis in your elbow but you think you could Bruce lead yourself right through a crowd because you just feel it right there and just <laughs> that's how I felt and I was furious because not only did they accost me they scared other people and they bullied them and that's where I draw the line that's my thing that's my trigger when I feel other people are bullied it really burns me and so I was enraged. I didn't even speed home. I drove slow. I was just like, Lord, help me, Jesus. Thank God the door was locked and I couldn't get inside of where that man was standing. Because I just wanted to talk to him. You know? I just want to talk. Can we talk for a minute? Come on, I want to reason with you. And he wasn't going to have it. And there it was. I felt 20. Not in that I was excited and and fit and, you know, and energetic is that I wanted to hurt somebody. And, and Paul's going to tell Timothy, you know, um, it's a desired task if one seeks to be an overseer. He must not be, he must be above reproach. That means you can't bring a charge against him. He must be faithful to his wife. He must be sober-minded. He must be self-controlled. So see, my love for you by the mercies of God, keeps me in check sometimes. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, oh, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, so on and so forth. Why? Because we have an interest in God's purposes and we don't have time for that. And what good does it mean to come in here and love on you and then hate my neighbor and destroy somebody else and to talk bad about this and to be known as the God? Don't make James mad. He'll pop you one. Because <laughs> it's not out of my character. It's just outside my discipline. Do you know forgiveness is a discipline? It's not an experience. It's not a, it's not a divine poof and then, oh, you know, I don't ever think about that. No, think about it. You've forgiven somebody? Yeah, man, I forgave that. You're, let them come knock on your door. Like, what is this guy ringing my doorbell for? I know good and well he is not coming over here to ask me a favor when he did what he did. That's not forgiveness. So where does forgiveness come? At that moment, the discipline is there. You serve them. You love them. You pray for them. You don't hold it against them. But it's not going to go away, guys. Our flesh may get older, but it's not going to get more holy. It's not going to be more righteous. But it can act it. It can live it until God says, yeah, let me show you what you got. God gives this divine calling 
the apostles, the pastors, the deacons are those who are in charge, the prophets. You know, and now we have the overseers and the servants, the office of overseer, the office of servant, and then everybody else who learns and shares accordingly. But these, this calling requires sound teaching in accordance with the truth, trusting the sovereignty of God in all of it. Sound teaching includes the full counsel of God, His glory and redemption and His guidance in our relationships with one another. Sound teaching is a part of, listen very carefully, is a part of God's grace effected to Paul and now to those who are called to teach according to Paul's instruction. Christ called the apostles, the apostles inform and what? Evaluate and confirm those who are called to teach and then the church, reading like Bereans, testing that, go, okay, this man not only has the gift, but does have the call, and all of these things are in place, we affirm. Not based on our desire and standard of what the job description is, but on God's desire, on God's revealed description. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I wish I'd just read that text and talked about it. So this will be a two-parter. Overflowed for me. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace. Hadis. Hadis. Some people may say charis. Because that's how it's spelled. And we've talked about grace a lot over the last year, haven't we? We've learned a lot about grace. We've learned a lot of things contextually about grace. The grace of our Lord. The grace of our God. The grace of God. God's grace. The New Testament, as I've said before, it reserves possessively. You know what possessive means? This is James's microphone. This is Mike's Bible. This is... You know, this is Nora's tablet. You know, that belongs to them. That's not true. I said, leave me my Bible there. You know, possessive. So when the Bible uses the term for grace, possessive to God, it is always, 100% of the time, effectual grace unto salvation to the elect or God's effectual continuing power in the lives of the elect. I want you to hear that. This grace. So biblically, when referring to God and His grace, this grace reflects the eternal essence of God. It reflects the essence of God in salvation. This is just repeat. I've said this stuff before. And it's not common to all humanity. But like I said a couple of years ago, um, well, actually a little over a year ago, that sometimes we use systemized ways and terms to express ourselves and how we understand or categorize certain things concerning theology. And for the most part, they're benign. They really are. It doesn't matter. But we've had some stingers, haven't we, through the years? Like, uh, let's see. Um, my brain just went dead again. And I didn't try to scroll up. We've had some stingers. There we are. Sanctification. What's the word mean? It can mean a lot of things. Progressive sanctification. Oh, does that mean we're getting better? So what does the Bible say? The Bible has a manifold usage of the term. It, it talks about it in two specific ways. One specifically, it talks about how we are to set apart our lives and our mouths and our hands and our eyes for the sake of God's name to the Thessalonians. Put away things that are not according to sound doctrine. You say, that's... Set yourself apart. But ultimately, in the spiritual sense, we see what Paul says. We are sanctified in Christ. It is a finished work. It is something that God has done. Uh, uh, Brother Trey, a couple of years ago, preached out of that. And he says, you know, that God takes us out of darkness and puts us in Christ. This is God separating us, giving us to the Son. This is an eternal thing that God has decreed to do. And it is something that God does in time, in the context of his relationship with his people, when he grants us faith to trust in what he's done for us. And so we are sanctified, we are set apart, we are holy only in Jesus Christ. But there's, there's, a, there's several of those. Grace is another one. Grace is a term that is, as we talked about last week, like love and joy and glory. Grace is another one of those terms that Paul uses very explicitly and myopically. And in the 
19th, 20th century, the Presbyterians got into a spat and they came up with this, this debate that divided them into three denominations. And it was on the issue of what we would call grace in a common way. Common grace or uh, universal grace or providence, long-suffering, patience, etc. And it wasn't that God isn't providential to all humanity or long-suffering or patient or sometimes exhibiting some type of kindness and that he doesn't starve the reprobate, right? As a matter of fact, I would say that sometimes God starves his people. And then fattens up the reprobate. But we don't know because we don't know who they are. But Solomon would bemoan that issue, right? Why do the unjust just sit around and get richer and fuller and fabulous? <laughs> I've got it all and I still can't find what they've got. What's going on? So what does he do? But this argument has become so entangled with historical division that we need to recognize that God overflowing His grace has to do with Him saving His people and sustaining His people. So while sometimes terms can be manifold in their usage both in the New and Old Testament, when it comes to God possessively having grace, it is explicitly used in a way that the term grace and God's grace is not common at all. It's not universal in any way. And though I may mean something different, I'm confusing something that the Bible will explicitly teach again. So what do we call that? What do we call? How about what the Bible calls it? Kindness. See? And this is a philosophical argument, but it has a contextual answer. And the contextual answer is that history has played with the ideas of God and the gospel, but the Bible alone is the final authority on what, is, what should be taught concerning these things. History can walk alongside us and we can learn and glean, but sometimes, beloved, there are many words which are not appropriate in my vernacular that were appropriate, for those of you who ever read Luther, in his day. You don't want your pastor talking like Martin Luther. If you've never experienced that, just go look it up. I know you're going to do it anyway. You'll be aghast. <gasps> A man of God talking like that? Well... That's debatable. The point is, he was in the position of preaching the gospel or the word or seminary, and he had a very foul mouth. <laughs> but we don't do that today. Or, or, you know, just like through the history where certain terms would be derogatory, would be racist. Certain expressions that may be commonplace when I graduated high school. Amongst all people, but now we've learned, hey, that's not what we mean anymore. This word carries a greater weight. We're not going to use it anymore. So what, the same thing is true for the things that we learn historically in our theology. Christ did not die to save all men. We are saved by grace. Christ's death was not a hypothetical event, but a promised and prophesied productive catalyst to bring salvation for all for whom it was intended. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said it is finished because the sins of his people, those to whom the Father would give him. I think that was right. Those who the Father would give him will be justified by his death. They will believe. They will see. And they will rest. This is grace. And history's played with these things. And it's concerning to me. But context rules over all words. Words in and of themselves are not heresies. People who use certain phrases and words are not heretics. The word heretic literally means divided opinion. And so the only time that becomes divided is when we insist upon these things in a way that hurts others. But context rules over grammar. Context rules over ideas. Context rules over politics and nationalism and worldviews. And the intention of the text is clear. And the Bible is clear. The grace and the mercy of God, the love of God for His people is expressed in the context of false teaching in such a way that it overflows to Paul. See, we believe, here's a historical tidbit, 
We believe that grace is the power of God unto salvation. That grace is an expression of God doing something effectually. It's not a substance. It's not a thing. God doesn't have a pocket full of grace. Like, like an old uncle handing a piece of peppermint from 1930. Pulls out all your teeth. No, God's not blowing grace around and hoping it lands on somebody. He's not. It's who he is. And when he reveals himself in scripture in relation to that term, he's saving his people. So this is the biblical understanding. There's no general sense where the context of scripture will allow grace to be understood outside of the effectual and particular redemption of his people when it's ascribed to him. And because it is a historical division... I think it's important for us as a church to lay aside that phrase. To lay aside that term. See, just like I didn't think I could get, I didn't think I had a button to push anymore. I found out earlier. I did. I think God did it to show me. that Sometimes, just what I'm saying now can push our button. Because I don't like feeling wrong. But I love the peace that comes from knowing that I'm doing what is loving and what is good and what is profitable. So the biblical understanding of God's grace is not common grace at all. And we disavow any idea that would permit that to be profitable. It's, I can tell you the history of, of the debate, which I've just recently learned over the last few months. But we know that historically the Church of Rome, what? The Church of Rome departed from the grace of God. And out of that grace alone, what happened? Out of that came the Protestant protesting. The protest, the Reformation. We're fighting against it. We're standing I say fighting, it, it means something different now. We're standing on the solidarity of Scripture. Who did it? The clergy. So here we are today on the other side of that. And all we have to do is just dip our toe in the water sometimes. And we can fall right back into the same thing with a different name, with a different idea, with a different focus. It's the same thing. And it boils down to not focusing on that which is contextually driven according to the profitability of God's name, but rather what best suits us. So the grace of God is not His patience. It's not His providence. Those terms have names. So let us be patient and run the race of grace, not the race to save face. Patience, forbearance, food, etc., they're reported in the Bible, but they're not called God's grace. But what is called God's grace is his saving, effectual love for his people. And although we as human beings are good to categorize things, and we're not malintented for doing so, the struggle has come to a boil. So not only are we going to stand in intimacy and not accuse one another of being heretics, we're also going to stand in intimacy and not insist upon our own way in the use of certain terms that are really not contextual. As these problems existed in the first churches, they will always exist in history. The beauty of it is that as we've seen here, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And I know I've gone long, beloved, just bear with me. Paul thought he was doing what was right. And the only thing that could change it was the grace of God to show him the truth. And this isn't just in word. Paul's body, when he died, bore the evidences of this suffering. 
No man but Christ has suffered the wrath of God and been raised to life. But Paul has suffered as Christ has suffered in a small way. But Paul has suffered like no man has ever suffered for the sake of the gospel of grace. Free and sovereign. So if the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, beloved, then we should embrace that in a way that gives us joy. And as we take this table this morning, as we taste these things and and with our mouths and remember that the outcome of the Lord's table in the first century was that the church had to get together every week. And because of the suffering, some of them did not even have food to eat or a place to stay. So they would bring food and prepare food and everyone would eat their fill. And at the end of the meal, children, adults, young and old, rich and poor, the elders would take a few scraps and would say, let's remember the death of Jesus and what it did. Let's remember God's grace, sovereign and free. Let's remember the blood of Christ that saved us from our sins. Jesus died. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, which is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God. So as we prepare our hearts for this Small remembrance. Let us remember that it is God's grace that set us together. It is God's grace that set us apart. It is God's grace that has saved us. And this is the gospel. And we'll finish this expression next week as we move into understanding this charge that Paul's getting to. But as we take this table today, let us not think of ourselves, but let us think of each other. And remember that Christ did not just die for me, but he died for us. Let's be united. We thank you, Father, for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. And Father, we've labored long in, in this introduction to this text. And Lord, I confess that sometimes I feel as though I'm taking too long. But Lord, I pray that you would give me the timing and the peace to know what is good for us. And as we continue to learn the heartbeat of what Paul is writing here by your spirit, that we will adopt it and, and apply it to our own lives. Father, we, we love one another because you have loved us. We love you because you have loved us. So help us. Help us to be a loving people. Help us to be a people that are not overly concerned with our own ideas, our own well-being, but are equally concerned with one another. And I thank you for growing us, Father. I am always fearful of not being able to grow and to learn. And so, Lord, I just thank you for your loving correction, your discipline, your affection for us. And as we take this table to remember who you are and what you've done for your people, let us remember that we are your people. And we thank you for this amazing truth in Jesus Christ. Amen.